We are Rogue Media Sports. Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Look, I'm not going to give much of an introduction. I'm just going to tell you that the payoff is back. I've had a rough uh, winter into spring, a good winter to spring, a lot of basketball, a lot of other stuff pulling me away from this passion project of mine. Um, and I'm bringing it back with a big name. Chris Knuckles Nyland played 13 years in the NHL. He's been sober for uh, almost a decade. His story is unbelievable. Uh, from being a guy who was a long shot to play in the NHL to being one of the biggest and most notable enforcers in the NHL. Uh, he's got a podcast now. We talk about that, a very successful podcast. He's back in Montreal where he played for the Canadians and won a Stanley Cup. He is a special guy, and his message is unbelievable. And I got to turn it over to my convo with Chris Knuckles Nyland. I want to get into your story, and we'll start. Sure. We'll start in West Roxbury. You grow up, you know, in a, in a neighborhood, kind of like uh, I guess you would say uh, a pocket of Boston. Um, yeah. Irish Catholic family, um, and uh, what, what's your upbringing like? Your dad, I guess, was a Green Beret. You know, I've read and listened to a lot of stuff about you. It sounds like he was a pretty a, a great dad. Yeah, it was awesome. You yeah. know, I certainly. Um, you know, he's a hot ass and, you know, certainly a disciplined guy and, um, you know, right and wrong. Um, there's no fucking in between. It's either right or it's wrong. And a lot of times I was wrong. <laughs> you know, we butted heads quite a bit. Um, you know, um, you know, he tried to keep me in line best he could and I got in trouble. I always bucked the system and, you know, he would uh, often discipline me with his hands. And that didn't sit well with me. And, um, yeah, but, you know, I put all that shit behind me. I, I mean, you know, I know I was an angry kid a lot of times, you know, like I, when, when I'd screw up, I do something wrong. One thing my father hated is a fucking liar. And that's one thing I'm not, I I've taken my shit over the years. And when I, when I'm wrong and I fuck up, I'm eating the shit. I ain't putting it on no one else. Never have. I never will. Uh, but it didn't mean that when I told the truth, I always liked the the the, <laughs> the consequences. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that didn't sit well with me. So I was always the type of kid when I growing up in the neighborhood, hanging out with my friends. We'd go places, you know, you know, be out. I was I was the type of guy that I just, you know, I had to take that kind of shit at home. I was never fucking, once I went out that front door, ain't nobody going to fucking treat me like that. Ain't nobody going to disrespect me. Cause I, you know, I felt I got that at home, you know, and I just, so I kind of had this attitude that fucking ain't nobody going to bother me. And I was very protective of myself and my friends, family too. But, um, 
I mean, my father carried that mantle himself, you know. Where, how about your mom? Like, what, what, what kind of mother was she? Like, just like what, the yeah. family. Like, what was the dynamic like? Yeah, my mom was awesome. <laughs> um, you know, she's, she's no pushover. She was a toughie. You know, she's fiercely protective of her kids. You know, um, you know, she's kind of in line with my father. In line with my mother had to discipline me at times when my my father was away or something like that. Um, you know, and um, she didn't put up with no shit either. But, you know, she was loving and caring. She always took care of us. And, you know, if anybody has something to say about her kids, she'll fucking bite their head off. <laughs> so you grew up in a, in a tough environment and you you become, you know, a tough person. I, I like how you say when you took it outside, nobody was going to disrespect you. You know, you you knew how to stand up for yourself almost inherently. I want to get to the, the addiction thing because I, I heard I heard you say something recently and it, it dude, it was the same thing that happened to me. When I was a kid, I went to I went Catholic grade school outside of Philadelphia. St. Thomas Good Counsel, right? Now, my, like, drug was, I, I, I like the speed. Alcohol baseline, but speed. And I they, they put me on Adderall and Ritalin. And I can remember going to take it um, when I was a kid, and I would take this this Ritalin at lunch, right, at school, because they would give it to me before, my mom would, and then I'd get it at lunch. And I can remember feeling, like, turned on, like, ah, oh, I, feel, I, feel, I feel good. I like this feeling, right? And I knew it was because I took that pill. I heard you say that when you were, you broke your leg when you were five skiing and mm. you said you were in the hospital and they gave you, you know, drugs overnight because the doctor couldn't come till the next morning. And you said mm. you remember that feeling, that hospital room. And it didn't mean you ran out and you were, you know, you were on Demerol for the no. next 20 years, but you remember the way that affected you. Oh yeah. Uh, like yesterday. And I, the two things I remember, well, a few, quite a few, it's so, my memory of that night is so vivid. I broke my leg. My father stuck me in the car. First, he yelled at me because he told me to do the, the uh, pizza pie all the way down. And I went fucking straight down. <laughs> no safety bindings on the skis. And, you know, my, my toes on my right foot were pointing you know, past my back. Oh. I mean, I fucking snapped my tibia. And I remember he, told, he skied down the hill. He goes, I fucking told you not to go straight down. I'm like, ah. <laughs> anyway, he picks me up, puts me in the fucking car. I got a broken leg. He doesn't bring me right to the hospital. He brings me home. <laughs> and he calls his sister, who's a nurse. And he says, hey, can you come over here? I think Chris might have broke his leg. So my aunt come over and asked me to stand up and I fucking remember trying to stand up and I was like in tears crying. <laughs> and she said, yeah, I think you better take him to the hospital. I think he broke it. <laughs> so we fucking pile me back in the car and he takes me to the hospital, St. Elizabeth. And, um, you know, I, I remember, um, it was late at night, it's probably around 1130 and the doctor wasn't there. They had to set it, so I had to stay overnight. And the things I remember, one, I was crying my eyes out because my parents couldn't stay with me. They had to leave. I was going to be there alone. Um, I remember the drugs because, boy, I was in such pain. And, and not only physical pain, emotional pain. And then... I remember the next day, there's a former 
now former New England well, Boston Patriot. His name was Carl Garrett, the black guy. And he came down the room. Some one of the nurses must have got him and said, this little fellow's having a tough time. And he came down the room and visited me. I remember it like it was yesterday. And he came down, he signed me an autograph. I was on, I was so happy, right? And, man, and he was so kind and so nice. And I'll never forget that day. And this is, I got to tell you, when I retired from hockey, I did a thing at the State House in Massachusetts. Former, some other former athletes that played on all the major sports teams in Boston. And you know who was there? Carl Garrett. No shit. He fell on tough times, went back down south. They had Carl come back up. And I went up and grabbed him. And I said, Carl Garrett, my name is Chris Nile. He said, oh, Chris, how are you? And I said, well, listen, Carl, you don't know me from Adam. But I'm going to tell you one thing you did for me that I'll never forget to this day. It was emotional. And I said to him, Mom, back in 1963, when you were playing with the Patriots, you were injured. And you were at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And he said, no, 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 don't go any further. And I said, what? No, he said, don't go any further. I remember. I went and visited a little boy. <laughs> You're going to tell me that you? I said, yeah, I'm going to tell you it's me. It was unbelievable. <laughs> like, I, I was so, I gave him a hug. I was like, I, I, I'm almost in tears talking about it. And, you know, the poor bastard fell on hard time. That, you Look, he had, he had a rough life after football, you know, and um kind of kind of felt bad for him uh, you know he was wasn't he's as well dressed as he could be but he's a little rough yeah. looking you know? well that transition's I, tough dude i mean what's that that transition is not easy right no it's not it's yeah. not but it, it was incredible so yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah so a couple things so remember. i remember the opiates too but <laughs> That was the best part of the story. Yeah, uh, and another Garrett. another thing, Kyle Garrett. That's pretty awesome. So another thing that you've talked about is a day you, you you'll never forget is you grew up in Boston, um, mm -hmm. and the first time you ever skated, there was like a puddle, right? Um, yeah. And it iced over, and you were out there just moving your ass, right? Like skating, uh -huh. and and you said you'll you'll never forget. It's almost like. The most as intoxicating as as the drugs, you know. It was clear, like you were in love. You were in love, you know. Yeah, you know, my dad. Um, fuck. I, I, when I look back, and you don't appreciate it then, you don't understand it then. But what he did for us kids. Um, Um, what he did for, um, uh, you know, my siblings and myself, you know, he, he, he was a senior in high school when he married my mother. My mother was pregnant with my older sister. Fuck. He had to get to work right away. You know, my grandparents kicked my mother out of the house and see you fucking later. They packed her bag out the door. You know, my father took her and my, my grandmother Nyland took her in. 
And then my father got to work. Like, my father worked his fucking ass off his whole life. And, you know, he he had time to take us to the beach in the summer. He'd rent the place for two weeks. He'd rent the place up in the uh, in the mountains in the winter for a week. Like, he worked his fucking ass off, my father. When I, I think of all the good things he taught us, you know. And listen, <laughs> you know, I had my tough times with him, but he was as good a fucking dad as a man could have, or, or a daughter, I'm telling you. He, um, and he was fiercely loyal, and, and, and he was a provider, and he did, he introduced me to so many things in my life that I, you know, I just probably never would have been able to partake in, if not for him. One of them was that pond. That that puddle, fucking skating on that puddle up the end of the street, and I'll never forget it. You know, I had these big fucking skates on. My my got my brother a pair of skates, my sister Susan a pair, of, and we we're out there bombing around. And I just remember the day like it was yesterday. And I, I um, I had my cousin who was pretty good, you know, artist. artist. Yeah, she um she um. I had her paint a uh, that scene. It was uh, uh, Rexall Drugs Warehouse, and it was in that parking lot. And there was a de- big depression in it, where the the um, it was built kind of on a swamp, and, and the the tar in the parking lot had sunk, and it was a really huge puddle. And my father n- knew it was up there, and. It got cold enough where it froze, and that's the first time I ever skated. And I had my my cousin um, recreate that scene. Oh. I gave it to my father for Christmas one Christmas. And I it know wasn't you... fucking, it wasn't a fucking Picasso, but <laughs> I got to tell you, it was it 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 meant a lot, I think, to my dad and my mom. And I know you're you, in the picture. And your dad passed away not too long ago, right? Yeah, twenty twenty one. Yeah. Um, and I know your mom is suffering with, with dementia, right? I'm, same thing. Yeah. My dad had the same thing too. I could relate to a lot of what you said, but I, w- I want to ask, I was going to ask you this later, but I'll, I'm going to fucking ask you now when, yeah. when you're, you know, in your sobriety, like what, how did your relationship change with your parents? I mean, cause you were, you, you were plenty to be proud of on the ice, you know, as mm. a young man, but when you got sober and and, and your folks were able to see that. How did it change that relationship? Big, you know, um, it was a big change. I mean, we always had a good relationship, but, you know, fuck, when I was fucked up and drinking and, you know, I knew my father was worried about me. Um, he, I remember him talking to my good friend, Jim Beasley, and said, hey, what the fuck is wrong with Chris? And of course, Jimmy's going to protect me, you know. He's all, right, he's all right, he'll be fine, you know. And, you know, that's how friends are because, you know, he knows how he knows how my dad was. And, um, you know, I was just fucking, you know, not living a good life. I just wasn't. I, I, you know, I, I was lost. You know, I was addicted. Uh, where um, I, I really didn't know a way out. And, and, and you know the deal if you've had to deal with it and it's, you know, people don't understand that, you know, everybody thinks just stop drinking, just stop doing the drugs, just fucking stop, grow the fuck up. People don't have a clue who, who think like that and don't understand it. 
And I didn't understand it, quite frankly. And I was wrapped up in it. And, you know, I can legitimize it all I want. I can justify it, taking the drugs because of the pain I was in. Um, uh, the amount of times I took opiates after surgery. And um, the fact of the matter is, yeah, I, I was prescribed that medication. And once I was addicted, I didn't have a clue what was going on with me. Because when I ran out of that, the pill, I'm like, what the fuck is going on with me? I'm sick. You know, when you're on the opiates, all the good things it gives you, it's just the exact opposite when you're you don't have off. them. Yeah. And then you realize when you take them, that all goes away. And, and it's not like you're getting high. It's like you're getting fucking normal. That's just to get you to an even keel. And and I didn't know what the hell was going on with me. And I knew nothing about going to treatment or treatment centers or, you know, I heard of AA when I was a kid. You know, I remember we had a kid, his, his father was an AA, and we used to tease him, you know. Yeah. He's a drunk, you know. Meanwhile, we're all shit-based <laughs> kids smoking weed, and everybody's fucked up on the street corner with busting this kid's balls because his father's an AA, like he's an alcoholic, you know? Well, he's, he wasn't an act, al, active alcoholic. He was in recovery. But we, we didn't fucking know. It was stupid, you know? Ignorant. Yeah. So I, w- I want to go back to that time where, where you were growing up and, and you start to excel at hockey. You're, you're drinking a little bit, but what, what was that like, that balancing act, like excelling at hockey? I know you talk about um, that judge, um, well, Paul King, right? Uh, and he was a huge influence on you. Judge is huge. Yeah, I mean he's a huge part of your story, and it's so interesting. Um, but but you're 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 it's a balancing act, right? Like I, I would imagine when you start to excel at sports and hockey, you're starting to drink a little too. Uh, was that just part one came with the other? Yeah, one came with the other. I mean, oh, my whole time growing up, you know, it was play hard, you know, work hard, play hard. And, you know, we would go out after hockey all the time, you know, friends, whatever. And then there was, there was one thing I was always committed. Like the friends I hung around on the street corner, not many played hockey with me because I was always playing on different teams. In the early going, yeah, when I was a peewee and a bantam. And then when I started to move up, bantam, started playing on all-star teams, Hub City and uh, with the judge. Um, and Steve Curtin, two, two of my awesome coaches growing up. My dad coached early in West Roxbury Youth Hockey and, um, and Mr. Fleming and then Steve Curtin and then Judge King in, in high school. But the early going, uh, we didn't really partake in it, those activities, you know, as PU still t- a little too young. But when we were bantams and midgets and you know it's after games you know after practice sometimes we go out and have a few beers in the parking lot or whatever wherever we were and then high school you know yeah i play my high school hockey but usually after high school games you know we didn't go out it was a saturday afternoon game something like that but i always uh, took the hockey serious um there were times in my um teenage years where my friends would be going somewhere they'd be going out and about 
either in town, bars or whatever, or they'd be heading down the Cape or doing something like that. And if I had a hockey game, I wasn't going. You know, I'd never miss the game. I was always committed to my uh, team, whichever team I was on. I remember one time um, I went down the Cape with my friends and um, we went down on a Friday and I had a game on a Sunday uh, in Hingham, which is south of Boston, about 20 miles, 18, 20 miles. And the Cape is beyond Hingham. And I went, I brought my hockey bag with me (laughs) and my stick. And I went down with some friends and then I ended up thumbing back. I left Sunday morning real early, stuck my thumb out for the hockey bag. Fuck, I got a ride in two seconds, (laughs) you know, and somebody dropped me off at the exit and I made the game. But, you know, yeah, alcohol was always, uh, you know, on the street corner, hanging around my friends, all that stuff. We drank around, you know, was around the house a lot in my home uh, with the you know, basically daily drinking going on in the house, um, you know, and, and the whole neighborhood, uh, the kids, when we hung around the corner, that's what we did. We hung around, we on the Fridays, Friday night, Saturday night, we're going out, yeah. you know, we want to go out and that's what we did. But, you know, that whole, uh, culture of, um, especially back in the eighties when I, you know, let's say the seventies when I was in college, you know, that whole college scene, it was, you know, you know, drinking and playing hockey, drinking, playing hockey, going to bars, you know, college bars. And, but again, I was pretty good at, you know, I, I wouldn't drink the night before a game, stuff like that, you know, but after a game, you kidding me? It was time to rip it up. Were you, so, and you were kind of, I think that, that's sort of important, an important part of your story because people saw this dedication and this drive, and obviously your talent and your skill. But you talk about Judge King. I mean, he he basically was was a vehicle for you getting into the NHL, right? He he helped you get into Boston yeah, University. He, listen, he got me in college with Fernie Flamin. He, he's the one who helped me get the scholarship because he knew Fernie, my coach at Northeastern. He set that up for me. And then, and he, well, he helped me get in prep school the one year when I had nowhere to go at my senior year. The judge recommended me to prep school up in Lake Placid, New York. And he wrote the recommendation and that was a big part of helping me get in. And then off to college. And then when I was in college, the judge um, was very good friends with um, two Hall of Famers here in Montreal, Doug Harvey, who was a scout for the Canadians at the time. And then uh, Dickie Moore, who was also a Hall of Fame left wing. And they went into Sam Paul at the GM and said, listen, here's the deal. Uh, you know, you got to do us a favor. And the Canadians, back in those days, the draft, now they only have so many rounds. Back in those days, it went until every team passed. So there were 24 teams, 24 picks you know, in the first round, second round, 24 picks, third round, 24 picks, fourth round, 24 picks. And then the next round, some teams wouldn't pick. So it'd be down to like 12, be then down to eight. And the Canadians kept picking. <laughs> and, you know, I was chosen in the 17th round. So it's like they just kept going because they, they figured we'll 
draft as you know we'll draft as many players as we can we'll have you know more players to choose from and more players to give an opportunity from you never know you might find that diamond in the rough well you were that diamond in the rough you were that long shot and you know the judge believed in you and you got you got your opportunity with the canadians what what was that like when you you get drafted i think it's like 1978 and you kind of get this you get baptized early, right? Like, like you. I guess you go to Nova Scotia and you play up there as you kind of make your way to the big up to the big league club. When was yeah. the first time? And you were known as an enforcer. When was kind of the first time that you realized, like, oh, this is going to be a whole a whole nother level here? You know, I'm 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 going to be able to because you mentioned you grow up, you want to be Bobby Orr, um, and, yeah. you, and you do have that skill set. But it's clear where you carved out your your you know your role. I didn't have the Bobby Orr skill set, but yeah, I. I Every kid in Boston wanted to be Bobby Orr growing up. You know, anybody who played hockey were like, fucking love Bobby Orr. And uh, I certainly did. He was a guy I just adored. I mean, adored Bobby Orr. And, um, you know, I guess really the first time when I went to training camp, I, I realized it was a whole other level. You know, going from college, all of a sudden I'm there and I'm around guys that I've seen four Stanley Cups won in a row by them. And I'm stepping on the fucking ice with them. How sc- like, Was there fear? Um, Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was fear as much. I had, I was just nervous. I didn't want to embarrass myself, yeah. you know? I wanted to do something good. I guess the fear of failure was more than anything. And, you know, I got through training camp and I did okay. I tried to play physical. Um, you know, I might've had a couple points. I didn't score. I think I had a couple of assists and I'm like, did I do enough? And the last day at camp, they brought us in and said, Hey, we're taking pictures for the, uh, the team, you know, uh, media guide and you got to come in and take a picture. So there's a picture of me with the afro, that one when I got the <laughs> mini skirts and maxi skirts and afro hair do. Well, I had the afro hair do. And um I have a Canadian jersey on. I'm sitting there and they take my picture. Well, it's the number twelve. And that's Evan Conway's number. He's a fucking Hall of Famer. <laughs> but he retired that year. And they just use that jersey for everybody. Here, throw this on, take a picture. And they kind of pulled the numbers to the side so you couldn't really see them. <laughs> but I guess you end up seeing them in mine. But anyway, you know, I took that, when I took the picture on there, do I have a fucking chance here? You know, because there were a couple other guys that were pretty good players that, you know, not everybody got their picture taken. So I'm like, shit, do I have a chance? I don't know. Cause I don't know anything. I'm really naive to it all. And the next day we go on the ice, there's a group going to Nova Scotia and then the Canadians have their own camp, the big team. So I'm in the group that goes to Nova Scotia and I'm happy. Cause I, I know I wasn't making the fucking halves, but I'm happy I'm going to Nova Scotia and I, and then I get sent there and I had a good friend became a fast friend, Timmy Burke. He's now like, he's been, it was the assistant GM in San Jose for years. He's now, he's still there, head of scouting and stuff. But Timmy 
there was a coach there named Bert Templeton. In the previous season, the, the Voyagers got their ass kicked. Nova Scotia Voyagers. They played against Philly's farm team, the Maine Mariners. And they beat them four straight. Maine beat Nova Scotia four straight. So Montreal said, we got to fucking toughen this team up down in Nova Scotia. We're not going to have a chance in hell. And we got to get tougher. So they drafted some pretty big players. Um, and all out the Ontario Junior Hockey League, a couple kids from out west from British Columbia. And we come to training camp and we're in the room and Timmy Burke comes up to me. Hey, how you doing, kid? He's from Melrose, Mass., just outside of Boston. And he played at University of New Hampshire and we're talking. He said, what are you doing, blah, blah, blah. He said, let me let me let you in on a couple of things. Tim was there a couple of years. And he said, this new coach here, he fucking do yourself a favor. Don't be first in line when the drills fucking get in the back of the line, watch it, and then do it. And this fucking coach really doesn't like college kids. His name was Bert Templeton. Bert always had really tough junior teams. He coached the World Junior Tournament in Pistony, Russia, for uh, Team Canada, when Theo Fleury was on the team, a bunch of them. And they had, it's called the uh, Punch-Up in Pistony. They turned the lights out in the stadium. All the Canadian kids started fighting the Russians, started kicking the shit out of them. And then all the, the Russians in the rink, they turned the lights out. Anyway, that's Bert. I know fucking Bert started that whole thing. And Bert didn't like college kids. And, um, you know, Timmy said, so those are a couple of things you got to pay attention to. And Tim, I go out to dinner with Timmy. You know, we're living in the hotel at the start. So I remember... We get out there, and there was a kid, Richie Costello, who's also another college kid, drafted out of Merrimack College in Massachusetts. And um, we get out there, we're in the first practice, and fucking Costello's first in line. And he goes, and he fucks the drill up. And Templeton blows a whistle. He goes, fucking Costello! Get over here, you fucking idiot. <laughs> you college kids are supposed to be smart, aren't you? And you go first and fuck the drill up? Get in the end of the fucking line and watch. Oh, fucking poor Richie. <laughs> I felt bad for him. And, and, and Rich, you know, not he was a pushover, but he wasn't the toughest kid. And I fuck, he was melting like there. The guy just fucking embarrassed him. And I remember Berkey bumping me. And he said, see, he fucking hates college. So I'm like, oh, this is fucking real good for me. So we used to do this drill in front of the net. And he put me up against this big kid, Alan Luchu, where you'd both be in front of the net and there'd be a puck there. And you had to try and hang on to the puck while the defenseman fucking beats on you. <laughs> so... We're battling for the puck in front of the net, and he fucking cross check me. I turn around, and I fucking chop him, cross check him, and you know we're pushing. So Bert, I think that's the first time he realized I wasn't like this one of those college, college kids. Yeah. <laughs> so the, I, and I don't have a contract, mind you. All these other guys do. So we play our first exhibition game, and uh, I get out in the ice, and there, there's a fucking big. Uh, French kid named Bam Bam Belanger. I always tell this story. <laughs> and, and 
and Bam Bam been around the league for a while and he fucking fought everybody. You know, you got a fucking good sized melon and he's he's big. So we get in a shoving match after the whistle, they break it up, and I get back to the bench. And one of the kids that were drafted, Dave Allison, was a big kid, big defenseman from Ontario. And we get back to the bench, and he leans down, he looks over at me, and he goes, hey, fucking college kid, what are you trying to start a fucking brawl? You ever been in a fucking brawl before? I go, hey, fuck you. You don't know what a brawl. You have been fucking shot at or stabbed, you fucking pussy. <laughs> I jumped all over him. Now, Bert's behind the bench, and he fucking loves it, right? I'm fucking giving it right back to him. Next shift, I go on the ice. They throw the fucking Bam Bam out after me. He's going to come after me now. Well, fucking Bam Bam comes after me, and I fucking Bam 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 Bam. <laughs> and now... Bert's probably going, what the fuck? This kid played college? And, of course, Allison's going, what the fuck? Why did I say that to him? So I don't talk to Allison the rest of fucking training camp. I don't say a fucking word. I ignore him. Don't fucking come near me. And he got the message. Because <laughs> we're out at bars a couple times with the t guys. Fucking stay the fuck away from me. So... And he's a good guy, actually. But <laughs> I didn't know him at the time, and he fucking challenged me. So we end up... Uh, <laughs> we play the... I, I end up signing a five-game tryout from that fight. They said, okay, we'll give you five games at $200 a game. So now I'm happy because I'm getting paid to play, even though it's a minute sum. <laughs> and the doors open for me. So we play the first three games at home in Nova Scotia. I don't play a fucking game. The fourth game in the season, where is it? Maine <laughs> against Philly's farm team. This is the team that embarrassed them the year before. So I get my chance. I'm fucking dressed and I, First shift, I get out in the ice, and I fucking run the biggest guy on the other team. And he happened to be the toughest guy on the other team. His name was Glenn Cochran. He played in Philly a bit. And he was like 6'4", fucking arms down to his ankles. And he ended up turning around, slashing me, and I slashed him back. We dropped our gloves, and I fucking let, root, let go like two quick rights, and away we went. I fucking cut him open and cut him good. He was bleeding like a fucking pig. And then he went nuts and trying to get at me, and I was trying to get at him. We both get kicked out of the game. So my father's at the game. He he comes down. He's pissed off that I get kicked out of the game. What the fuck? We all come all the way up here to see you play. And, and they, well, <laughs> you know, what do I know? I don't fucking know what's going to go like this. It's the way it went. So... The next morning, uh, we went to bed that night, and we we're going to leave the next day around noon, and the coach called me in the room. He goes, uh, hey, Chris, come down here. Uh, you, you got a few minutes. I want to talk to you. And I'm like, fuck. What, are they going to send me home? Yeah. I got kicked out of the game. Fucking all worried. And I come down in the room. I open the door. I said, come on in. Sit down. I'm like, fuck. He said, um, so what's the deal? Who, who's your agent? 
And I said, I don't have an agent. And he goes, well, you better find one because the Canadians want to sign you a contract. So there was a scout from the Canadians there that night watching the game, right? And I think it was Claude Durrell and Ron Caron. And um, I ended up um, that next day, I didn't have an agent, but I spoke with the Canadian. They said, well, when you find an agent, um, you know, get in touch with us. And that I did, found an agent, uh, and I signed a contract uh, like a week later. And, and, then, and then we're off. One fight. And then we're off, right? I mean, Yeah, and, and the, the thing with that, you know, I only played 49 games in the American Hockey League. Back in those days, like Larry Robinson was down there a, a while. There were some really good players that stayed there one or two years three years in some cases before they even made it to the NHL. I played 49 games there. I had 15 goals and 10 assists, which I think shocked them as much as the fighting shocked them. And um, then I got called up and I never went back. How, how did you adjust yeah. to life in, in Montreal? Cause, cause now it's, this is royalty. Go ahead. Well, before, you know, before we get there, you know, that, time in Nova Scotia, you know, that one fight set off like a fucking insane amount of fighting for me. So people wonder, I come in the league, I was just going to be a fighter. That's how I was going to make it. No, like I, I want to make it being a hockey player. But once I had that one fight, I signed a contract and then everybody else in the league who fulfilled that role wanted to fight me because I beat Cochran. <laughs> who the fuck is this guy? So every time I came to town, the, you know, it gets around. Everybody knows who the fighters are. So once I beat Cochran, everybody in the fucking league wanted to fight me. That's how you end up with 3,000 penalty minutes. Well, I ended up in 49 <laughs> games. I had 304 minutes in penalties. That's fucking insanity. I, <laughs> I, I would have ended up with almost 600 in a season if I kept going the way I was going. Anyway. So you, then, get, you get up to Montreal. Yeah, you get called up. Now, what is it? What's it like with with the drinking and stuff like that? When you get you get to the NHL, you know the the work culture is the most overused word in, in the world right now. But drinking is a real part of that hockey lifestyle. W walk us through, you know, because you you mentioned you didn't you didn't do drugs really um, when mm -hmm. you were in the NHL. I mean, sometimes in the off season, no, I didn't. Yeah, off season here and there. Yeah, I dabbled. I hated smoking weed. Even when I was a kid, I tried it. It made me a paranoid. I, I don't need shit to make me paranoid. I don't need shit to make me interact with people. I never had that problem. I was never intimidated to talk with people or interact. I just wasn't, you know? And and if when I smoked weed, it fucking freaked me out. Um. So yeah, the drinking, um, it was always part of the culture in hockey. And then Jesus in the, in the 80s, I mean, just think about it. You know, went from in, in hockey, you know, the 60s, 50s and 60s, all those long train rides those guys had to take, killing all that fucking time on a train. What do you do? You play cards and you drink. Someone might read a book, but most of them are probably fucking drinking. And, you know, that culture grew over the years. And then it started, you know, trains to planes and and then 
in the 80s, it was just like an accepted thing. It was like a bonding thing. And when I came to Canadians, you know, one thing we had to do every day after practice is we'd come up out and we'd come out of the Montreal Forum, walk across the street to the, there's a big underground mall there, take the escalator down, take a right, and down in the corner was a tavern called Le Cabernet. And we'd have to go there every day for lunch. You didn't have to drink. You had to show up. But if you showed up, chances are you were drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, so you were drinking pretty much every day after practice or whatever. Just, yeah. 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 You would, you know, and, and again, say it's, we're playing Thursday night. It was a Wednesday. We'd go to lunch and have a couple of beers and go home. That that, you know? that that was a fast lifestyle too, like because yeah. you know you mentioned you were going home. Some some guys weren't like the NHL. You had guys that were just you know that could that could do drugs and play. And um, I, I remember being in Philadelphia when I was in, a, a kid in '85. Pelly Lindbergh died. Um, yeah, and and that, I remember yeah. the night it happened. Yeah. And, and so what is that? You guys are in the NHL. Like that's a guy clearly living in the fast lane who passes away. Is there any like message that that sends to you guys, or are you just like uh, you know? No, it was scary. Yeah. It just shows you, shows you uh, how vulnerable and how fleeting and uh, delicate life can be. Yeah. But you know, uh, when I when I think back of those days, it's like there there was a pretty healthy respect on the team. Uh, from the sense that, you know, we had captains and we had guys that fucking oversaw everything. And if you were out of line, they'd fucking speak up, you know? Uh-huh. So, you know, night before a game, like I said, we'd have a couple beers that afternoon and guys would go home, get ready. You know, you wouldn't be out all night drinking. But there were nights, you know, we'd play on a Saturday night. We wouldn't play till, you know, Tuesday. We'd go out Saturday night, fucking whoop it up. Or you had a couple days off. Not the whole team will go out and whoop it up, but some of the younger guys, you know. What's what's it like? Well, there's a mix. What's it like to win a Stanley Cup in Montreal? Oh, it's incredible, you know, and just incredible. You know, you see the freaking crowd behind me there. Oh, uh, my gosh, at the parade. Wow. No, that's sick. That was <laughs> uh, like five and a half, six miles of that from storefront to storefront. Uh, over a million people. It was insanity, and it was an experience that I wish I got to do more than once, but I'm grateful I got the one opportunity to do it. And it was incredible, incredible. People, this is a different town when it comes to hockey. You know, it's a, it's, it's not a hockey town. It's a Montreal Canadiens town. There's a difference, you know? You know, they do the World Junior Tournament. They have it out in in, in in Ontario or they have it in Toronto or they have it in Edmonton or Calgary. People come out and support it. Here they have the World Junior tournament and shit. Some of the games they just didn't sell out. People don't they're like, ah most of the games they didn't sell out. And that tournament usually sells out no matter where it goes. And the reason being it's really a fucking Montreal Canadian sound. What, what, Not so much a hockey town. What was it like for you around town? Did you get like was it was there almost a sense of because you seem like a pretty grounded guy? You you came from a rough and tumbled you know upbringing and family. W- was there a sense of entitlement being a Montreal Canadian r- running around that city? 
Yes or no, but I never, you know, fuck, I remember being in the line to go to the movie theater and a guy come up, come on, you can get in. I'm like, no, I don't fucking do that. Okay, yeah. You know, I, I'm going to walk in front of all these people look like a fucking asshole. No, thank you. <laughs> I'll wait in line. Yeah, yeah. So you, know, you want to bring me a box of popcorn? Go right ahead. <laughs> fuck that. I ain't cutting everybody off. So, you know, yeah. and it's funny, and that, and that comes from my dad. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember coming out of the forum one night. My parents were waiting for me out in the garage. And there were a bunch of people there and kids. And so I'm signing autographs, signing autographs, took a couple pictures, blah, blah, blah. And then I come over and we're going to head out the door and jump in the car and go have a bite to eat. And my father said, hey, come here for a minute. And they're what? He said, I'm going to tell you right now. I just saw what you did over there. Don't ever stop doing that. Don't ever fucking, you know, have the fucking sourpuss on. And keep your fucking feet grounded. You don't let that shit go to your head like you're some fucking big cheese. Keep your fucking feet on the ground. I'll never forget it. And I think for the most part, I did. I've always had time for fucking people. Um, you know, maybe I wasn't smiling every time, but I always did it. Yeah. But for the most part, I I I, I can say I I give the people the time of day, and I'm very open with people and forthcoming and. You know, that's a credit to my dad. It rubbed off on me, no question. And so you have this great career. And, you know, as, as it winds down, I think you were 34 when you retired, or, or, about that age. Yeah, uh, 34. You know, there's a there's an acceptance you have around the magic that comes with, with playing in the NHL. And, and you say, hey, at some point I had to realize I wasn't going to feel like that about, about anything else. You know? Um well, you don't know that. Yeah, but no, but but when you get done, you're like, oh shit! Like at some you point, you don't know it till it happens. Yeah, yeah. And so, how do you deal with that ad adjustment, Chris? Like, you it's know, really hot. Yeah, like you know, you kind, you, you you know, you go from you know showing up every day with a group of guys, you're passionate about what you do, you love it, and then all of a sudden they tell you, you can't do it anymore. You know, you used to hear it, guys say, oh, you're just a piece of meat. I'm like, oh yeah, not me, but you are. You know, you the fucking racehorse. When you're done, you're done. At least they go and get laid for a while. The racehorse, <laughs> but um, you know, um, yeah, I was lost. Um, you know, you can prepare uh, as as well as you can. You can put money away. You can do this. You can do that. But nothing will ever really prepare you for that shock of the end of it. And then, what do I do now? And, you know, some guys, um, I won't say everybody has a seamless transition, but some guys certainly transi transition better than others. And some struggle. And I'm one that struggled. I did a few different things. I never found anything that was satisfying or that gratifying to do in my life. Um, I took a year away from it and I struggled. You know, I got lost. When when did the uh, you know the drug the the alcohol was kind of always there, and you can call that a drug, but it, for you, and it is a drug. I mean, I'm alcoholic. Yeah, I all started with that. Yeah, for sure. Me. Yeah, but then, I, I don't drink. I don't drink normal. Yeah. When I do, and you know? and so you're out there. You're not drinking normal. You have more time on your hands. But then, I think that you know the respect you have for the game maybe kind of kept you out of trouble with with drugs and opioids. But then, but then yeah. it just hits you totally different, right? I mean. How, how do you develop 
this appetite for opioids? How do they start to just agree with you and your body to the point where you're like, holy shit, I don't know what happened, but now I'm here. Well, some of the, you know, surgeries, I had one after another. I remember after every surgery, I would be taking them and I, you know, they helped me deal with the pain. And I always equated uh, killing the pain. Like people say, oh, take a Tylenol. A fucking Tylenol? What's a Tylenol going to do? I always equated with me feeling different. And, And that told me it was working on the pain. And, you know, after surgery, I'd take them, I'd take them, and then I wouldn't have them. I felt a little off. And then i have surgery again. And next thing I'm taking them, I'm running out. Now I'm looking for more. Calling the doctor, hey, can I get another strip? Okay. Then it went from calling doctors to get script to find them on the street to eventually taking so many because of progression of uh, the, the disease of addiction, um, you know, starts with two every four hours then it goes to four every four hours then fucking six and then before you know it you're chewing 20 or 30 of them a day and when you look you know you look at it you're going what the hell is going on and then you know the wonder drug came out oxycontin and um you know that's i was so addicted uh to the painkillers the percocet that when Oxycontin come out and someone offered it to me and told me about it, that they're saying it wasn't addictive, that there's no aspirin in it or Tylenol, I'm their shit. Um, you know, I'm taking so many pills a day and with all that aspirin or the, all that Tylenol, it can't be good for my system. Yeah. So this new drug, Oxycontin, at the time I'm thinking, listen, there's none of that other stuff in there, the Tylenol or aspirin. So it's got to be healthier for me. And it's not addictive. So I'm not. So I started on that. And man, when I was on, started taking that, it was just fucking went to all other level. How hard was it to get the prescriptions? How hard? Yeah, back then. Um, Not really. You know, I could be somewhere and go in and tell a doctor, you know, you know, I'd be in Canada somewhere. You know, uh, even d- down in Boston, be anywhere, and I, you know, talk about the amount of injuries and surgeries I had. I got arthritis. You know, I could fucking spin a pretty good bullshit story, but I had legit pain, but yeah. not, I mean, not taking opiates that are supposedly supposed to be prescribed to cancer patients who are dying. Fuck, you know, yeah, I was in pain, but. So, but doctors would fucking prescribing them like they were M&Ms because, you know, they had incentive to do so. And they were also lied to saying that it's non-addictive. Yeah. You know, fucking crazy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's our fucking wonderful government. You yeah. Know, fucks us all over. And that Sackler family and that, and that whole, st- all that stuff. Uh, yeah. That was just like, for me, that was up there. And then was, you know, as a kid, it was Pelly Lindbergh and then Len Bias. You know, you just knew where you were that day, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah fucking crazy, you yeah. know? Um, yeah, I remember, um, you know, Len Bias going to go to the Celtics, right? What could yeah. have been. Yeah. I remember that. And then certainly Pelly, I remember it happened. You know, 
there was a kid in Boston, Craig McTavish, that uh, maybe a year before that. Craig McTavish, one of the McTavish brothers, he, he passed away? No, Craig McTavish uh, played for the Bruins. Okay. He's a college kid, Canadian kid. He played down in, I think, Lowell. Okay. And he made the Bruins. And he ended up being a big part of the Edmonton Oilers. But the Bruins used to have a, you know, they had the beer in the locker room. When I came to Montreal, you never, they never had any alcohol in the locker room unless you won the Stanley Cup. Okay. At home or on the road. They never did. The Bruins used to have a lounge in their thing, and they had a big refrigerator full of beer, and then the guys out to practice used to drink. Anyway, and then they'd go across the street to the floors or whatever, and Craig McTavish was driving home one night after uh, leaving the garden, and he rear-ended a girl in a car and killed her. Oh, okay, so he's still alive, but that was just okay. Yeah, and, and, and what happened, you know, the, I think the leagues, you know, there was some type, type of suspension. And then uh, Harry Sinden ended up trading him to Edmonton uh, after the suspension was over so he could get out of town. Uh-huh. But actually, Craig McTavish um, became friends with the family, the parents of that girl. Oh, uh, he made amends to them, and they really accepted him. And whenever he came to Boston, he would meet with them and go to dinner. And it so that happened. And then the Pelly Lindbergh thing happened. Yeah. And I think there was a little bit of a a change in mentality across the league with the drinking. Yeah, it, it didn't stop, but I think the especially in the locker rooms at home, you know. Uh, after practice, stuff like that, things change. I yeah. think started started to change somewhat. Okay, all right, we're we're, we're all good here, so I want to get back to you. Um, yeah. You know, we talked about it was it was easy for you to get prescriptions, um, and then and then you come up against oxycotton, which is easy to get those two, and and then you run into a situation where you accelerate and you end up on heroin. How how does that happen? Well, that happens when. Um, you know, it, it's starting to get tougher to get them, you know, and, um, you know, I, the thing is in 2000, I went to treatment and, um, I got well and I stayed sober for about two and a half years, but I was hanging on by the fucking fingertips. I wasn't doing the work. Uh, you know, I took fake it till you make it, um, to a whole other level. <laughs> and, um, you know, slowly, um, I was drifting away. And I remember one night, and this is not a blame thing. This is just how it happened. But I was, it didn't matter if she was involved or not. But my ex-wife, who is a wonderful woman, doesn't have a mean bone in her body, a good person, we were out for dinner. And she was having a glass of wine and we were talking. She said, so you think you're an alcoholic, really? Said I like, I said, listen, I know as a drug addict and I, this, I had a real hard time reconciling that I was an alcoholic. I believed I was a drug addict because I knew I was addicted to drugs. Alcohol, I didn't have to get up in the morning and drink. 
I didn't have to drink to get through the day. Didn't mean I wasn't an alcoholic though, but I always looked at it like that. Like, did it really cause a whole lot of problems in my life? And, and when I got honest with myself, I realized it did, but I still hadn't. And I said, you know what? I, I yeah, I, I didn't think I was alcoholic. I, I just, you know, they convinced me not to drink because it'll bring me back to the other shit. She said, well, I just never thought you were an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I had a glass of wine and I was off fucking running again. And, and again, it's not a blame thing. It wasn't her fault. Yeah. I was ready to relapse anyway. Mm-hmm. So I started drinking again and then eventually back on the pills. And um, I ended up uh, going to treatment again. And I went to treatment in Oregon. And then um, I get out, was doing good for a while, about eight months. And I relapsed and started um, um, snorting that shit. and then eventually came to injecting it. And yeah, it was horrendous because you couldn't get pills by then. It was like, uh, Oh nine, 2010. You couldn't get pills like you could before. Um, it was getting difficult and that was cheaper. It was easier. Were you living in Boston or Montreal at the time? I was living in Oregon. Oh, you were living in Oregon. So you're, you're, you're doing hair. I got out, out of there. treatment. I stayed there. Uh-huh. Uh, Jamie and I, and, um, we were fucked up. I went, that's your I girlfriend, right? She's sober. What's that? That's Jamie. That's your girlfriend. She's sober too, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I, I credit her to put the stop to all of it. And I ended up, I went back East, uh, to make some money in a, an event back in Toronto. And, um, I had left and I tried to reach her and I was calling her and I'm there, fuck, what happened? Did she, something happened to her? I couldn't get in touch with her for two days. And she um, had gotten a plane and flew back to Hawaii where she's from. And she finally picked up two days later and said to me, Chris, we're never going to have a chance together. We keep going like this. So I'm going to get well. I want you to get sober. Because you guys both relapsed together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they warned us that would happen, but we said not us. Sure, yeah, yeah. But it happened, and I thank God she survived it for sure, and me. But the time, um, honestly, I thought I was going to lose her. I thought I lost her when I couldn't reach, you know, get in touch with her. I finally did, and she said, so... Yeah, I'm going to get well. I'm going to focus on myself like they told me to do at the beginning. And I think suggest you do the same. So that was around, I think that was around November of 09. And yeah. And I went back to Boston. I never went back. We had an apartment in fucking Oregon, place right in Cannon Beach. I never went back there. I lived in a hotel and I was fucked up until she kept calling, you know, after she got well, you know, we'd stay in touch here and there. And she said, Chris, she's still doing that shit. You got to get well. And I mean, no, I'm not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think you're fooling people and stuff? Yeah. yeah, I'm fine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fine. 
And I think it was uh, May, early May. So I went from November, December, January, February, March, April. May. And it was the end of April, beginning of May. And we had been talking. And, you know, she would email me. And then we're on the phone talking. And she said, Chris, you're going to fucking die. And... I'm like, ah, I'm fine, you know, I'm fine. And she said, well, here's what I'm going to do, but you got to promise me you don't show here, show show up here fucked up. And I'm like, okay. So now I'm thinking I'm going to, she said, I got a, a guy here who's an addictionologist that um, Dr. Kevin Kunz, who was really good, he helped me, and I'm going to set you up with him. And, I want you to come here and get well. And um, that's what I did. I flew there, sick as a dog when I got there. Uh, I didn't show up fucked up. Um, I was starting to really jones and was sick when I got off the plane. And I was kind of sick all night, fucking like a dog, sick. And... I was meeting him at nine o'clock in the morning and I went to see him. I met with him for like a week every morning and I started going to meetings again. Uh, he got me on Suboxone to quell the withdrawal symptoms. And, and this is in Hawaii. Yep. Okay. And I stayed there for about, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe two, three months, maybe. I went back home two months and I went back home and kept it going. And, um, yeah. And then Jamie and I was moving back up to Montreal to do a radio show. Uh, I got an offer in the radio and, um, I was going to be moving back up here and, um, it was, um, yeah, 2010, September, 2010. Or was it 2011? Uh, 2011. 2011, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so 2011, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to be moving back up. <clears throat> I'm in the hospital. Uh, I was in the hospital for the month of June and July for two months. I had a uh, staph infection in my ankle. They almost had to amputate my left foot. Um, I had screws in there from when I played and I got a staph infection. I don't know if it's from my drug use. Chances are, yes. Yeah. And then um, I'm allergic to penicillin. So uh, they had a hard time getting rid of the infection. And then I had three surgeries in five days and I was on IV for two months. So August comes around. I'm supposed to be back in Montreal by September. For, for hockey, right? For the well, show. To, for the radio job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At TSN. Yeah. And um, I was supposed to be moving back yet. I wasn't sure exactly when I was going to get the radio job, but I had to move back there first. The plan was to go there in September. Jamie uh, ended up flying to Boston right near the end of August. Um, 
and uh, we got in the car. I was fucking, I was in a wheelchair and on crutches. <laughs> and um, but you're sober. I had a borrowed vehicle. I had like 500 cash in my pocket and a hockey bag full of clothes, and off we went. And here we are today. <laughs> so, it, so when you moved up to Montreal from Boston, you're sober, right? And yeah. you know, I I know you you had like a, a night in 2015 where you slipped, right? Yeah. But around all that, what what does like what does Chris Nyland do to stay free from, from alcohol and drugs? And to because because dude, you could tell talking to you, you have a total zest for life. You love mm-hmm. living. You don't need alcohol and drugs to be this person, right? Living life like a loose shirt. How do you get there? How do you get there every day? Well, you know, for me, it was, I, I was going to meetings. I was doing what I was supposed to be doing uh, to stay sober on a daily basis. And as things got good again, I got lazy. Yeah. You know, I got lazy. It's a program of action. Uh, you have to be involved and uh, you have to be involved in your own recovery and no one's going to do it for you. And I got lazy. Did you stop going to meetings? <clears throat> What's that? Did you stop going to meetings? Yeah. Yeah. Got lazy. Things are going good. And I went home. My mom had a stroke. I went home and, um, you know, I, I was weak. And uh, I made a phone call and I almost ended my life. You know, you think you got one more in you. You think I can do this. And I'll never forget it. <clears throat> my father was upstairs with my mother. I had been there. I made a phone call. I was like freaking out. My mother's going to die, blah, blah, blah. And instead of, you know, stiffening up the backbone, sticking the chin out in the chest, you know, I was fucking weak. And I made that phone call. Kid drove over there to the hospital. And I grabbed the shit. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna snort it. That's all I'm gonna do. And I grabbed it and I said, "Fuck!" It was cold, kind of cold out. And um, I said, ah, "I ain't gonna." It was December, actually December sixth, twenty fifteen. And I was gonna go jump in my car and do it there. And I said, "No, fuck it." I said, "It's nice and warm in the hospital. I'll just go in one of the bathrooms there." So I did. I went in the bathroom. I, I don't remember. I remember just, I remember I snorted a line. I don't remember anything after that until I woke up in the emergency room. Apparently I snorted the line and went back into my mother's room and I sat down. I just, I was gone. And my niece was there, Courtney. And she realized something wrong with me. She ran and got the doctor. They rushed me to the emergency room downstairs and they hit me with Narcan and brought me back to life. And I guess what's different today really scared the shit out of me. And I'm like, what the fuck? How selfish can I be to, you know, end my life like that? Leaving, you know, my father there to deal with my mother and now dealing with me dead. My kids, my grandkids, Jamie, you know, how fucking selfish. And that really got my attention. Now I'm, you know, 
<laughs> and your sobriety date is December 7th, right? Or, or Is that right? December 7th. I went to a meeting the next day with my sponsor. Um, had a long talk. And uh, I got back on the horse again. And, you know, then COVID came and, you know, um, Zoom meetings happen. I still, I do a Zoom meeting every day. Some One, I do two on Monday. I do two on Wednesday. I do two on Thursday. Tuesday, I go to an in-person meeting. Thursday, I do one meeting. And on the weekends, I I chill. What, and, you know, the odd time on a weekend, I'll either go speak at a meeting or... Yeah, how much how much of that do you do now? Like speaking and stuff like that? Because you got... Someone asks me, I do it. Yeah. yeah, whenever someone asks me, I don't... You know, it's just people, if they ask you... Someone asked me, I do it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, there's a message there, there's no question. And it's the thing with everybody. You think you got one more in you. You think you can do it again. You think, you think. It never, ever gets better. You think, oh, I can drink again. It never gets better. And I never drank normally. Like I said, I knew I was a drug addict because I, I was addicted physically. Yeah. I was never really, I wasn't, I was never physically addicted to alcohol, but I fucking drank for the effect. I didn't drink. Oh, let me have a beer. Let me have one glass of wine. That didn't yeah, yeah. one glass of wine, fucking two bottles of wine. Oh, I'll have a beer after practice. No, I won't. I'll have fucking 10. And then it's like, when do you stop? And people don't, people are normal. They don't understand that. Oh, just be a mature person and, you know, have your one beer and go home. Fuck, people don't get it. You have to live that. You have to be, that has to be in you to know what that feels like. People who are normal, one, they know what they know, but they're ignorant of what an addict or an alcoholic goes through. Yeah. They're really ignorant of it because they can only see it one way. They see it as a, a moral failing as opposed to uh, uh, a physical and, and, and mental feeling. Uh, it's, it's a threefold disease, you know, and you know that. It, uh, physical, spiritual, mental disease, you know, and um, they don't, uh, those people don't get it. And not that I worry much time thinking about that, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny sometimes I hear people speak about people who got yeah. fucked up in their lives. I, 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 get a, couple... I get a kick out of it because really there's no not many people out there that this has not affected this disease of alcoholism or addiction. Yeah, no, and 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 a couple more things, and and, and I'll and I'll let you get on yeah, with fine. your life. Whatever you got. All right. Um, one of the things I I got to ask you about, and and we'll close off with some addiction stuff and some lighter stuff. Your ex-wife. Whitey Bulger was was her stepdad. Yeah. What, yeah. What, and, and what the hell was that like? I mean, you you've got this life that's so interesting. Like you're just falling ass backwards into people like this. I mean, what what um, what, what was that like? I mean, he was a complicated dude. Obviously, you didn't have a bad experience with him. No, I got along great with him. Listen, I didn't hang around with him all the time. I had I certainly been out with him on quite a few occasions here in Montreal. Um. I, um, um, 
talk to him on a lot of occasions. You know. Um, How about the story of the first the first time you you met him when he yeah, takes the, <laughs> tell yeah, that story? You know, I remember going to the house and Karen kept telling me, you know, uh, you don't know him. He's you know fucking crazy and uh, I'm, yeah, whatever. Fuck, you know, I knew of him. Of course, I knew who he was, but it was a whole different thing. She said that there's never been a like Karen had two sisters. One was younger, and her brother Billy. But she said there's never been another male and man in that house. You know, so she brings me home. We're gonna go out, and we're ready to leave. And he said, "Chris, I want to talk to you for a minute." Karen, wait in the car. So she went out in the car, and you know. No, sorry. We both sat down, me and Karen, and he had a gun on his lap. And uh, he said, listen, Chris, here's the deal. I know you two like each other. Uh, I just always respect her and treat her like a lady and um, never lay a hand on her, you know, be polite. Because if you don't, there's going to be a problem. And I said, okay, you don't have to worry about that. And I said, actually, you didn't have to pull a gun out to tell me that. He said, well, that's the way I do business. I said, okay. And I think he was impressed with that, to be honest with you, in the sense that I wasn't like, oh, my God, he's fucking got a gun. What's he going to do? I mean, I'm going on the first day. He ain't going to fucking shoot me yet. <laughs> I knew I was getting out of there, you know, unless I sucker punched him. But, um, uh, and then we went out in the car, and... Karen, uh, Karen got in the car and we were right in front of the house and he opened the door and stuck his head out as I was getting in. I had let her in the, you know, passenger door and then I come around and the door opened again. He said, Hey, Chris, come in. I'm like, fuck. So I, <laughs> I said, what's he, what's he fucking want now? And I went and sat down again. He said, here, I know you too. I know you're going to school and playing hockey and all this. You're working part-time, but yeah, here's some money. And he peeled off, I, I think it was Gino Cash, and said, have a good night. And we went to um, Cafe Budapest in Boston, a place he used to go. Went and saw the lady in white who ran the place. She's <laughs> from Hungary. Awesome restaurant. And yeah, so that's how that started. But he, listen, he did his thing, whatever he did. Again, and, you know, it's funny. I, I've heard people talk about how the fuck could he ever talk to him and be, I people mean, don't have a yeah. fucking clue. Yeah. People are so fucking foolish. Like until you're in somebody's shoes. Did, you have, yeah. I minded my fucking business. I didn't marry him. I married Cameron <laughs> and Cameron's mother was just a really good person. And, and anyway, so yeah, that whole part of my life and you know, I know, like I said, I never had a problem with him. He, yeah. he used to come up here to get away and, He'd come and watch hockey games, and he'd see that you know Colleen, my my daughter, and, and when Chris was born and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he he was in a different fucking line of business. It's a wild, it's just a wild, yeah. wild interaction. Life is crazy. So, uh, two more things. What do you tell somebody that that is struggling with addiction that just can't, you know, and they and, and they feel hopeless? Well. You know, I, I, I try and convey the message that, you know, one, um, there's, you, you never lose hope. You can never lose hope. Two, the way you feel right now, 
if I'm sitting with someone and I was um, three weeks ago sitting with someone and I said to that someone and that someone was in fucking tears, crying like a baby, shame, guilt, all of it. And I just let him spew. And I said, you know what? JP, I said, you never, the way you feel right now, you never have to feel that way again. But you have to do something about it. And I said, there's, there's help, help offered to you at a very reputable treatment center in California. I think for the best thing for you to do is get on that fucking plane Wednesday and show up and take care of this thing and learn how to live your life one day at a time without alcohol, you'd be surprised. You can be happy. And the quicker you get the one day at a time thing, and, I, and I'll tell you, the one thing I struggle with, I can never drink again the rest of my life. I'll never have fun. It couldn't be further from the fucking truth. Yeah. And <clears throat> JP's in treatment right now. So <laughs> yeah, those, those are things, you know, because a lot of times when you speak with people, they are at such a fucking low point and they feel so bad. If you can get that message across to them that, you know, the way you feel right now, you really don't ever, because someone did that to me. Yeah. You, you never have to feel like this again if you don't want to. If you really want to feel like that, then you can stay like that. But there's a way out. Does, and does, I remember I was told that and fuck you, it caught my attention. Does the NHL take advantage of a guy like you? Uh, do they? Uh, do they? No. No? Why not? No. Why, I mean, the fuck? I, I, listen, you know, they have a, um, a program, the beha- behavioral health program, where... And I know the people involved, Dr. Lewis, Dan Cronin, Dr. Shaw, Dr. Shaw no longer. Um, and they are adamant about anybody who comes to work in that environment um, has to be um, have the credentials. Yeah. You got the so career funny. yeah. When I first got sober, I went to, did the class in UMass Boston and was doing all that. And I took the test to get my KDAC and I missed by two points and I never took it again. <laughs> I relapsed instead. <laughs> so I could have had the KDAC and had it done, but I never went back. So it wasn't meant to be. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you would just think the way that we network in recovery, they would say, hey, if a guy's struggling, say, hey, give, give Chris Nyland a call. I, I, you know, whatever. But even, even, you know, they, like, I don't know what they do. And I'm real good friends with Dan, but I've never understood why when they have these rookie trainings and the, 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 uh, Seminars, the camp in the yeah. summer, all these young kids are coming in that they don't have them in one night and have them hear the fucking story of someone like me. Yeah. You know, uh, a former player who who struggled with what he struggled with and it can fucking happen to you so and, and believe me i know if i talk to a bunch of young fucking kids and i tell my story they're going to be fucking gripping their seats 
<laughs> oh yeah, they'll be paying attention. You know what I mean? I, 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 I would love to do it. Yeah. And I just, you know, they've never tapped into me, so that's life. I'll, I'll, um, I'll go where um, I'm called to go. Well, you know. And so you got the podcast, and like, where can people find you? You're easy to find on Instagram. You're uh, on yeah. social media. You're 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 awesome like that. But where what's what's the podcast called? Where can people hear it? It's called Raw Knuckles Podcast. Uh, you can get it on YouTube, Podbeam, yeah. uh, iTunes, all of it. Um, you know, it's, it's a little more hockey centric. Yeah. Um, I'd love to expand to talk about some other stuff like world events, current events, all those things going on in the world today. But you know, I'd have to go down a whole different avenue. <laughs> I had kind of had a ready-made audience here because of radio. Yeah. So I tapped into that, and listen. I like talking about, I like, like talking to ex-athletes, current guys. I enjoy that. It's fun. And I'm not saying there's no substance in that. No, oh, there is. I, it's fun. I really love to talk about world events and what's going on in the world. I, um, I've been doing some things with Patrick McEnroe, the tennis player. Oh yeah. And Patrick and I, uh, um, certainly, different on the political spectrum <laughs> opposite poles and um we get along so we're talking about maybe some doing some things together but we'll see how that goes i'm sure you keep an eye out you'll see if that happens or not but we've been talking um but yeah the the, the podcast i have my website knucklesisland.com uh, we've got the knuckles brand gear hoodies hats knuckles go bra um <laughs> Knuckles forever. Come up with that one for St. Patrick's Day. So, yeah, and and Jamie, you know, helps me take care of all the. Um, the she helps produce the podcast. She produces the whole Knuckles brand, all that. Um, you know, we worked hard together. It's funny when we were moving back there. I told her, listen, here's the plan. You know, I'll get in the radio. We'll get a website going. We'll start. I'll do some speaking. We'll start doing all this stuff. And she couldn't comprehend it. You know, she just didn't have a clue. Didn't understand what it, the, the, yeah, the magnitude of it. Yeah. And yeah. she didn't understand. Not that, you know, what, I'm fucking Michael Jordan. I'm not. Yeah. But, you know, we come back here and I, she just had a hard time putting together that, <laughs> you know, this guy's been retired for fucking 30 years. How's he going to do this? Yeah. And then when she got here and realized how it is here, then you know everything we said we we're gonna do we did the two of us you know we're gonna do this we're gonna work together toward it and we have we've worked hard together to build what we have you know we went from fucking living in my dentist's condo to renting a place not one lick of furniture furnished that place saved up enough money end up buying a house in 2017 we got our own place like we've you know, had an awesome life together in the time we've been back here. You know, it's been priced, uh, you know, 13 years now. And, you know, life is good. You know, I had that hiccup back in 2015. And I, I, I got to tell you that um, it happened for a reason. And I, I've never been, honestly, I've never been happier in my life. I just haven't. I get, my kids are healthy, grandkids, five grandkids, um, you know, 
my youngest one has struggled a little bit, but she's doing okay now. And, um, yeah, life is good. I got to tell you, it's an honor to talk to you. Uh, and- awesome. Yeah, awesome uh, to, to be on with you, for sure. Yeah. Um, you were a fun interview to do it with. It was a fun podcast, I got to tell you. Well, Knuckles, thank you so much. Mr. Lawler, before you go, can I can I say one thing? Um, I am a huge uh, San Antonio Spurs fan, and so um, every other team's announcers uh, tick me off. You are one of the only ones that, and I've watched basketball for thirty years. You you were one of the only ones that that I always liked listening to, and so I don't know if that's a compliment or not. But from a Spurs fan, you're you're a great announcer, and I I really appreciate you being on this. I don't know. I don't know about the great part, but uh, along those lines, when uh, Phil Jackson was the coach of the Lakers, um, he told me one time what you just said. He said, I, I watch all video. They watch video nonstop. I watch all video with the audio off except yours. He said, I love you. And I thought, well, that, that's, that, that's that high is, praise. Yeah. That, yeah. You know what I you, you know what I think the secret is uh you you were never uh, a homer for your team. I mean, you were you were just true about what was going on in the game. And and that was that that's a big deal because you listen to a lot of local uh coverage and they are my guy is always wrong and his guy is always right. And that's just it's not the case, you know. That's that's all I need. So Well, you're you're a Spurs fan, one of my favorite people on earth is Greg Popovich. He's a, a wonderful man, a great coach, but way more than a coach. He's a great, great man. I just well, love him to death. When Pete has him on here, I'll quit the next day. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so right, much. Now, it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank so you so much, man. Okay, guys. Appreciate right. you so much. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. We are Rogue Media Sports.